The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and guten tag, and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen. Welcome to our first podcast, Historians and Lederhosen. Um, Did you guys secure any Lederhosen yet? They're kind of expensive. Yeah, I'm a little too poor. Mine are on back order. Back order? Oh, you lucky dog. At least you have some ordered. Dude, where'd you get them from? I have my sources. Good. Well, I don't know if working in a nonprofit, if I'm ever going to be able to afford later hosen. So uh, maybe <laughs> maybe we can get some sponsors and we can all get some later hosen. There we go. That'd we promised to cool. take an abundance of photos for you. Ooh. Striking we'll every pose, one pose in a later hosen. I mean, it's a very good visual for an audio podcast, right? I mean, <laughs> I was always told I have a face for radio. Uh, well, maybe we can actually uh, get some eventually. But uh, so anyway, uh, welcome to our first episode of Historians Later Hosen. Uh, when we were brainstorming this podcast, we kind of came up with a whole list of topics, and then eventually we sort of settled on. Well, we kind of need an introductory one that kind of talks about who we are, what the museum is, what do we do, things like that. And so we're going to kind of wrap that up and also talk about uh, public history. Um, so Malcolm, we'll go ahead and just get started. Uh, how about I turn the mic over to you? Tell us a little about yourself. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, hello, my name is Malcolm Cottle. I am currently the collections manager for the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Uh, I just started back in June and it's been a whirlwind. I dove in uh, feet first in the deep end over here, uh, but it's been fantastic. Um, my background is uh, predominantly in history and museums. Uh, did an undergraduate degree in history and then went to Fleming College for their museum management curatorship program and learned basically how to do everything one would do in a museum. Um, did an internship at, internship at the Smithsonian, and that was really fun for a summer, and then ended up coming back to Michigan and uh, working for the past uh, five or six years, and then I landed here, and uh, I'm excited. Yeah, my passion is really in uh, interpretation, preservation, um, and finding just new ways to communicate history with the public, so I'm uh, really glad to be here and glad to be on the podcast. We're glad to have you on board, too. Uh, Garrett? All right. So I'm Garrett. I'm the uh, token unpaid intern here at the museum. Um, We're sorry. uh, We're working on that. Hey, it happens. (laughs) But yeah, I am a uh, fifth year student at Saginaw Valley State. I just transferred, but I study history with my minor in public history. Um, I spend most of my days uh, in three or four classes and uh, working at the writing center or coming here. But history is just a really important part of my life. I remember one one day when I was like nine years old, my parents took me to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and from that moment on, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, and now I'm here. I guess that's about it. Public history, to me, honestly, is just trying to make history accessible to everyone. In one of my classes, we're talking about who owns the past 
And I think the people should own the past, and that's why I do this. You're jumping ahead of us. I didn't even get to introduce myself yet, Garrett. Oh, I'm Wait so... For public history. I'm so wow. sorry. <laughs> I feel sorry. like my intro was so unprofound now. I didn't have any, <laughs> anything to really say. I just I gave my really resume. S- <laughs> I had to really sell myself. I'm trying to get paid, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> Write a grant. <laughs> uh, the joys of working in a museum. So, uh, yeah, I'm Nathan, and I grew up in a small town here in Michigan, Shepherd, Michigan. Uh, didn't always want to be a historian, actually. When I went to SVSU, um, I originally wanted to be a physical therapist. Um, and then I job shadowed my sister, who was an occupational therapist, so close-ish to the same thing. And I realized it kind of takes a pretty special person to do that, and I didn't know if I was cut out for it, to be honest. Um, around that same time, I was also taking a history class with uh, Dr. Jolly at SVSU, and I loved the way he taught history. And he, he was kind of a personal inspiration for me to pursue history, and so I did. Um, graduated with my bachelor's in history minor in black studies at SVSU, and then I went to Florida International University down in Miami, where I got my master's and my doctorate in history, um, kind of specializing in African-American history. So I wasn't... Um, anticipating eventually working at the Frankenmuth Historical Museum. Um, That wasn't like my area of specialty by any means, Um, but I'm very happy to be here. I've been here for about a year now, Um, and I direct education events and exhibits here. So I'm I'm excited. I think I found a home for a little while, and uh, yeah. So So just jumping in, Nathan, just because I'm curious, Garrett brought up his kind of light bulb moment of when he kind of realized like museums was a possibility and Mm. that uh, this was something that he wanted to pursue. Have you had that at all? Like when you were at a museum or like went somewhere and we're just like, Oh wow, this is really cool. I'd like to be a part of this. Mm. So are you asked, did you ask specifically about like working in a museum or just history in general? Yeah, whatever you want. Uh, So I guess my inspirational moment was probably in probably sitting in Dr. Jolly's class, just learning about um, some of, the narratives involved in African-American history. And it was stuff that I never learned when I was growing up in a small, white, rural town. Um, just never learned about that stuff. And so I had a lot of questions that I wanted to pursue, and I guess I just never quit pursuing them. Um, so, yeah, that that's probably my inspirational moment. I think that's, like, one of the biggest things about working in history and studying history is, like, you mentioned you had a lot of questions that you just never got to learn about. And, like, you guys have worked in history a lot longer than I have, but like I'm in my fourth year of being a history major and I'm in classes that I've retaken since I transferred. And like, I took the same class, one history of modern China when I was at North Dakota State and then a history of modern China with an actual East Asian professor here at SVSU. And there are still questions that both of them were gone over by the same professors, like the same topics. And I still have questions about the same events that I don't know if like in my whole life I'm ever going to get definitive answers to and it's just like you won't no you won't absolutely not but <laughs> the like, longer you study history the more questions the you more, have. yeah exactly the more questions you have and i think that's what makes it the most fun one of the most fun professions that you can get into is you're always learning And I think a lot of historians, especially, and people that end up working in museums are very much driven by curiosity. I think that's the theme we're kind of circling here is the unknown is just so tantalizing, (laughs) I think, for so many people. And just that genuine curiosity of why is this the way it is? I mean, I think everyone everywhere has sat around and said, why why is this the word that we use for this, you know? And it's the 
study of history that'll tell you that answer or you know why is the save button still a floppy disk <laughs> you know like some kid is going to ask that at some point like why is this the save button i don't understand and then someone has to explain the history of com- computation basically to say like oh well that's a floppy disk and that was the first way we saved information <laughs> yeah my my professor dr stinson shout out um in class yesterday we were talking about um the topic of like in America, you say that you're studying history or you work in history and you have a good like subset of people that are like, what are you going to do with your history degree? Why are you here? Always. Why are you studying history? That's so boring. But she mentioned that like, there's history of everything. You could explain mm-hmm. again, like the history of the save button. You could explain the history of Nike shoes, like all these things. And like you find your niche and literally anyone in any field can probably just get into really niche history that they'll find and enjoy, I guess. Oh, 100%. That's why I've always said, like, if you're going to just study anything for the sake of self-education, history is the ultimate subject. I don't care what anyone says. History is the best subject to study because you ultimately study everything. You have to have basically a foundational knowledge in every subject of human, human activity to be able to understand history because you have to have a basic understanding of the progress of medicine to be able to study history. You have to understand technology, economics, philosophy. I mean, everything is covered under the study of history. So to me, history is the absolute best subject to study because it literally encompasses everything. Yeah. I think uh, when you dive deeper too, it's you get into really fascinating parts of history. And part of that... Um, Part of the tough thing when working in a museum is how do you communicate those deeper themes and meanings in history to the public? Mm. And so when we're talking about public history, maybe we can focus a little bit on on that too in this podcast. But uh, Malcolm, I'm interested in hearing a little more from you. So you're our collections manager. Um, tell me more about what you do. What's What's a day <laughs> in your life look like? <laughs> at the museum. Yeah, no, sure. It's a good question. Um, I find a lot of people in my profession have the same answer when they're asked for like a day in the life of. And a lot of people say the best thing about my job is that no two days are the same. And the worst part of my job is that no two days are the same. <laughs> it's really hard to find. Uh, you you have routine and tasks, but not in, um, in your days. So basically, as a collections manager, um, no, I don't have anything to do with money or repossessing cars. <laughs> a lot of people that uh, aren't familiar with museums think uh, that's the case, but uh, museums generally use collections as a term for everything. So previously I've been a collections manager, a collections assistant. Uh, There are collections specialists, collections preservation specialists. So collections is sort of a very broad term used in museums to refer to any job that's related to working with artifacts. Um, The group, a group of artifacts is generally considered a collection or a, a subset of a collection. So as a collections manager, what I do at the FHA is I manage all of the three dimensions and two-dimensional artifacts that we have at the museum. So that could include any three-dimensional object that a a human being has created and has used in the past. Um, And uh, I am responsible for caring for it, preserving it, tracking it, researching it, and taking care of it. Uh, So we have a 3D artifact collection. We also have a archival collection. We also have a photograph collection. And we have a reference library as well that um, we keep try to... We try to keep up to date. It's just full of uh, different kinds of books that might be useful to read researchers or our own research when we're doing exhibits or trying to learn more about the artifacts in our collection. So the the best way I can describe my job is I am a public steward. 
that's really how I look at this work is my job is to be a steward of this collection. I, I have like to that. take care of it. I have to be responsible for it. Um, and a lot of that responsibility for the collection really just falls on my shoulders, even if it's in exhibit or if it's on loan. If it's in storage or um, anyone, a researcher wants to look at something, I have to be the steward of that artifact and I have to make sure that it is always in its best possible uh, state of being. And I do that uh, a multiple of ways. I, you know, clean artifacts, I store them properly using archival materials that won't damage them. Um, I make sure that the climate is perfect <laughs> for <laughs> artifacts because uh, a lot of artifacts are, uh, yeah, they, they like to be very cozy in their storage locations and they like just the right level of humidity and just the right temperature, so I have to make sure that they have everything they need to stay stable and uh, not deteriorate over time, because as most of us know, old things break, old things you know, uh, get brittle, and they uh, decompose, and they uh, deteriorate over time, and my job is to try to prevent that from happening as much as possible. And that's a little different than someone like a conservator. A conservator actively uh, employs treatment methods to reverse um, deterioration or completely stop deterioration. My efforts are more in a um, preventative conservation is what we tend to refer to it as. It's um, taking preventative measures so that conservation doesn't have to basically happen. But it does. I mean, no one's perfect and uh, things, you know, are just sometimes without your means because it's, uh, it's a very expensive field. Conservation is very expensive. The materials to store uh, artifacts are very expensive. The uh, the things that I have to, uh, the strategies I have to implement for climate control and pest management uh, tend to be very expensive. But uh, I would say that's kind of my job in a nutshell, is to be a steward of this collection um, and to preserve these artifacts for the public. Um, one thing I really believe about collections managers is a lot of us are kind of gremlins. We like to just uh, hide in the dark in dark storage areas and not talk to the public or see anybody. We like to just work with our stuff and just love and uh, get to know our stuff. But uh, I've really tried to make an effort to be um, a uniquely extroverted collections manager <laughs> because I believe what's the point of preserving all of these things in a dark basement if no one ever gets to see it? What's the point of it all? Um, I, I think at that point you're just sort of a glorified um, hoarder. Basically, yeah. You're a professional hoarder <laughs> at that point if, if you're not preserving these artifacts for any point for the public to be able to see them, for the public to be able to research them, learn from them uh, and uh, a lot of museums obviously uh, do that through interpretation, through exhibits or podcasts or things like that and uh, I think that that's my role is to play a very much supporting role in that endeavor to make sure these artifacts are in the best possible uh, state of being that they can and that the information related to those artifacts is as accessible as possible, not only to FHA staff, but the general public as well. So give me a couple of examples. What's something you've done to uh, get an artifact out in the public or something like that? Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great question. Um, so generally speaking, exhibits tends to be the the big bad uh, for all museums. Is put it in a display case and let everyone look at it without touching it. Um, some of the work that I've been doing in the past year is uh, is a big focus on digitization because you can reach such a wider audience with digitization. Um, I personally still think that there's nothing like seeing the real thing right in front of you. I've seen, I'd seen hundreds upon hundreds of photos of the, the mask of Tutankhamun, you know, the iconic, you know, visual of ancient Egyptian history. It's nothing like seeing it in person. Uh, absolutely not. Like once you see it in person, you're like, oh wow, it's, it's that small. Like it, it, it blows your mind a little bit. Um, the same with uh, La Jacon, uh, the Mona Lisa in, in Paris. You know, you, you've seen it printed on T-shirts, underwear, socks, <laughs> postcards, everything. And you've uh, seen it printed on underwear, Malcolm. I, 
If they can sell it, they will sell it. I'm telling you. Hey, can um, you drop that? Can you drop that website? Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you a link. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but again, too, uh, another great example of until you see it in person, there's just nothing like it. You know, like, um, and it's bizarre too because the, the way it is at the Louvre, it's like it's so small, and then it's on this ginormous wall in the middle of a room. It's it's really quite comical. Anyway. Getting off topic. The point is, is I've, um, in terms of accessibility artifacts and their information, I've really worked hard on digitization projects. So uh, trying to scan or photograph in multiple ways and then get that information online. Um, so there's tons of different ways to do that. I've kind of looked at, uh, we have uh, collections management software, so CMSs, where we store all the information on our artifacts and there are ways to put that information online. I think that's great. I think that's uh, one way to start because you put that information out there. But at the same time, for me, I'm thinking there's a bit of a lack of interpretation involved. So what I started looking into is uh, digital exhibits um, and putting exhibits online. So I did a program like that at uh, Applewood in uh, Flint called Discover Applewood, where we started fabricating digital exhibits, um, which was really cool because we got into like 360 photography and we were able to add like archival videos and modern videos and splice them together. And we did a lot of really fun stuff like that. So yeah, and um, I've taken um, a couple of workshops and seen some of the stuff that uh, the Harvard Semitic uh, Museum is doing, and they're really getting into like really advanced like 3D replication and 3D digital spaces. Uh, they they're taking this uh, Mesopotamian tableau. It's really cool. So this giant stone tableau, they completely recreated it. Um, so it looks exactly like the real thing, but it's not. So the real thing is stored down in the basement, but then they've also taken digital software so that you can hold up an iPad to the tableau and it'll animate the tableau and tell you the story and translate the words for you and everything like this. It's mind blowing. And that's the kind of thing that we should be doing. Like that's the whole point is making it accessible to public and allowing them to learn in so many new and innovative ways. I, that just like geeks me out so much. So if I can preserve these artifacts and make that information available so that other really cool and creative people can come in and then we can use that information to deliver it to a public in a new exciting way other than just read this paragraph and now you will know. Okay, goodbye. Thank you. Pay your admission. Bye-bye. You know, uh, just pushing the limits of what is possible in terms of public education and uh, the public learning about their own history. So since you've mentioned a lot of like trying to make collections a little more modern and digitizing stuff, um, so being the student, the resident student, um, we're learning in my public history class a lot right now about Chen Hall's nomenclature. Do you still use that as a 21st century 2021 collections manager? Like the the Chen Hall's nomenclature manual. Oh, like for for naming artifacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. So um, that's. Oh, we're getting real deep into <laughs> collections management here. So uh, basically, uh, what, I, what I think Garrett is asking about is there is a, uh, a standardized naming system for all artifacts in terms of what an artifact is called. Because as we all know, there's a lot of different names for a lot of different things. Here in the Midwest, for example, we have a ton of different names for bizarre things. You know, is pop, it, not soda. Is it pop or is it soda? Is it uh, a can or is it an aluminum receptacle? You know, like all these different kinds of things. You can get very academic with your terms. You can get very... Um, you know the vernacular changes in regions and and in places. So, quick um, quick side story. Yeah. I'm talking about interchanging words. So <laughs> I also teach, and students plagiarize sometimes, and all they do is change a couple words to try to. <laughs> one of my students uh, changed the word eyes, like your eyeballs, to ocular perceivers. <laughs> uh, that was that was pretty insane. So anyway, sorry to sidetrack. Did you give him an A because he deserves it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he got reported to the dean. <laughs> 
rip, that's, yeah, rip I, imaginary student or real student that we don't know. <laughs> it feels like a great example of like when you can't reach your like word count for a paper, so you just yes. start turning one word words into like three word words. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, uh, sorry, returning back to nomenclature. So, uh, basically, they uh, the museum community uh, started conforming to the nomenclature standard. So, uh, there's been a series of books that classify basically every uh, human made artifact in in existence essentially and it has to obviously continue to be updated because when they started making it dvds weren't a thing usb wasn't a thing so um yeah obviously new technology uh negate um not negates the fact but uh requires that we keep updating it so we're actually currently on nomenclature 4.0 uh so it's the fourth released full version and uh most um uh, CMSs nowadays actually incorporate nomenclature right in so that you can't actually name it anything else unless it shows up in the nomenclature. That's very cool because uh, when I got handed like a 18 sheet packet and I was told that that wasn't the full thing, I was like kind of overwhelmed. Like I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's a huge <laughs> and it had like book. it had like like. 200 terms on one page and I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this at all. Yeah. And the way it works is on uh, multiple um, divisions of classification. So it starts with a um, kind of these broad terms like artifacts for communication, artifacts for uh, manufacturing. And then within those categories, there are now up to two subcategories. And then you actually get to the, um, the name you actually want to get to, which is like, what the heck is this thing even called? Um, and we get that all the time because we get, you know, weird things that we just don't know what they're called or what they are. But uh, basically, nomenclature makes it so that every museum, no matter where you go, is speaking a common language in terms of what is this object called, whether it's a phone, whether it's a computer, whether it's uh, um, a beer tap handle. Everyone's calling it the same thing, so you can look it up in any museum's uh, database and know what you're looking for or what it is. Yeah, it's a good universal system for everyone, right? Absolutely. So so I really like, too, Malcolm, when you try to... um, show the public what you do on a daily basis too. For example, um, we just uh, took in a very large collection of over 700 plus artifacts and Malcolm, (laughs) yeah. Um, And so that was a days long process to get those artifacts in. And so what Malcolm, what you actually did is set up a GoPro and did like a little time lapse of us uh, going through and identifying each object, getting it into the system, giving it its own uh, unique number, which everything needs. Um, and then releasing that to the public and like showing like, this is what I do. Like this mm-hmm. is a painstaking process <laughs> that takes so much time um, to preserve these artifacts. But without collections managers like yourself, we wouldn't have these artifacts. Um, so it, it is a very um, intricate science, I guess, if you will, to, to preserve these artifacts. It is, yeah. It's it's a science. Um, it's also just a kind of a methodology. Um, I like to say, like a lot of museum work, really isn't hard, but it really does take a commitment to the process. That's what I tell everyone. I tell interns that. I tell volunteers, like this work isn't hard. Like when I explain to you what we're doing, it makes sense. Like you don't need an advanced science degree um, to do a lot of collections management. But it's more a mentality. You have to commit to the methodology of doing it right every single time, not skipping steps, treating the artifacts with respect, treating the process with respect, filling out um, all those uh, fields in your database consistently every single time and not just you know taking the shortcut. That's really what a lot of collections management is. It's, it's a commitment to the steward 
ship of of the collection and to just doing everything the right way every single time and not just saying, uh, I don't want to do this. All of these, you know, the, these 10 artifacts all get the same number and I'll just put them in a box and put it on a shelf and forget about it. No, digitize each one of those photos, give them all a unique number, create a new record for every single one, measure every single one, write out all the people, all the things you see, what kind of material, what kind of print photography it is. Do the work. That's really what the, that's what, what's hard for a lot of people in this field is just committing to doing the work. Um, and I think when you do that, uh, honestly, uh, the, the thing that fills me with pride in my job is that I do this for the public. You know, I consider myself very much a public, uh, a public servant um, in a lot of ways because most museums are, you know, incorporated into the municipality in a lot of ways. And we're nonprofits. We have certain uh, benefits that we gain from being nonprofit organizations. And I think we have to uphold that and stay true to, to the public because we're given these privileges and we owe something back to the public. Yeah. Um, so I just want to get back to maybe maybe defining public history a little bit more. I, I, I don't know if we've done that real concretely for the listeners. Um, so I've kind of been, and I'll just speak from my personal experience, so I've kind of been on both sides um, of what I call the academic side of history and then the public side of history. Um, so the academic side of history is kind of those, they, they probably work um, at universities, teaching, researching, writing, talking a lot about theory and, and things like that, um, really trying to be on the cutting edge of some of this stuff that we do in history. Um, I always kind of picture them um, to use a Disney analogy, uh, is like the hunchback of Notre Dame. So like they're, they're kind of like in the shadows and then like if someone spots them, they, they run back to their office real quick and the offices never have windows either. It's that's no. the smallest office and they expect you to put bookshelves in there and get hundreds of books. Anyway, this is what I'm telling you though. Most collections managers, they just want to be like basement goblins. Like we just want to hide in the dark with our, you with see, our artifacts and not your, talk to anybody. Your, your history professor's office is on like the fourth floor of an academic building and it still doesn't have windows and you're really confused how it doesn't have windows on the fourth floor of a building. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we like to live in the past, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the academic side of history. Uh, the public side of history, if I'll continue with the Disney analogies, think more, and I just watched this movie the other day, which made me think of it, is uh, Hercules. So remember the old cartoon Hercules? Um, he's a very kind of public figure, and part of it, there's a whole scene where he's like slaying monsters and saving people, and they have like uh, the sandals that are supposed to be like Air Jordans, but they're oh, like yeah. Air Hercs or something. Yeah. Um, so he's a very public sort of famous figure. I, I kind of compare that to like what we do as is public historians, right? We're very out in the public communicating with the people, trying to relay some of these intricate messages um, and, and themes that academic historians have studied over the ages to the public. And just to try to um, develop a greater appreciation for history at the same time. Um, so public historians, they, they probably work at museums like ourselves. Um, they might work at like historic parks, libraries, maybe even in, in government positions as well. Um, and then like we've been talking about, they might manage archives, excuse me, curate exhibits, um, and then organize events for the public, which is what I do. I direct education events and exhibits here at the museum. So I wear a lot of hats and, uh, it gets to be a pretty busy job. My, my job each day is never the same either. I'm either, uh, working on something for a future exhibit, um, 
updating our current exhibits or working on an event. Um, right now, I have a cemetery tour in the plans, which Ooh, is, is really fun. Um, Coming up for Halloween? Yeah, 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 it will be. It actually, it won't be like uh, spooky. So we have a local church here, uh, St. Lawrence, um, that it has a very old cemetery and some of the first settlers are buried there. And so what I actually want to do is get some reenactors out there and uh, to be able to tell the story of these first settlers. So it won't be like a ghost tour by any means. It's, it's going to be a very respectful sort of, um, hopefully a way that people can appreciate what the first settlers went through, what their lives were like, and, and things like that. So events like that, that's kind of what I do um, to try to get the public his- interested in history. Um, and Garrett, you also do quite a bit of this as well um, as an intern here. You manage our History at Home program. Can you tell us a little more about that? So essentially, it kind of goes back to when I introduced myself as, um, as a 22-year-old in 2021, history has always seemed to me to be something that, like you were talking about, it's the, the hunchbacks that sit in their office and they have all these books and you go in and you ask for office hours and they're like poured over a tiny little book <laughs> and you're trying to figure out like what they're looking at. But like when I started public history and when I decided that I was going to make that my minor people essentially just told me public history was history for people who didn't want to teach in a high school. But as I've done this internship and as I've um, had other <laughs> other experiences, I've realized that like history is what we've kind of been beating around the entire time is that history is making, or public history is making history accessible for people who may, may not be the same type of nerds that we are, that, are, that aren't exactly obsessed with that. And I think that's like the big message of the History at Home program where we make we make blogs that are maybe a little less academic that you can read about like a couple of more like niche events or bigger events in a way that is a little more understandable for people that don't spend their time reading 90 page articles about random agrarian revolts <laughs> in India or something. <laughs> or, and then like the same thing with, with the history at home videos where we just find really small events or different people that we can talk about and we write a little story about them, say a script and then show pictures of them and just different ways to make it, like I said, accessible to people. They, we mm-hmm. want people to be able to enjoy history in their own way instead of having to be like us where we spend years of our lives studying really niche events for semesters at a time. This, <laughs> this is just a way for people to study the same niche events in a little quicker way, in a little more understandable way, I guess. Yeah, just sitting around having a coffee or uh, enjoying a beer or something, and you can read one of these articles that Garrett writes. Um, it's, it's a very <laughs> nice and relaxing way to, to sort of consume history. Um, anyone have anything else to add that they want to share about public history? I was just going to say, I think, I think the struggle that most people have with defining public history is what is the level, if you will, quote, of history that, that public history lives in? Because there's kind of a, a continuum of the depth of history that one gets into. Like in elementary school, you learn something like, you, most people learn very like surface level history, like the Egyptians did this, and then the Romans did this, and then the pilgrims came over, and they you know had Thanksgiving, and everything was fine, <laughs> and, no, uh. and nothing was bad. <laughs> um, but then you get to history, and his, a lot of history um, in high school, uh, those teachers will be like, okay, so this is what you learned. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Like I remember studying World War II. I think that's a pretty uh, pretty good example. You know, in, in elementary school, you kind of really, you know, understand that it's like, okay, the Germans were the bad guys and we were the good guys and then we went over and we defeated the bad guys and and that was the war. And then in history, you, um, in high school, you start really understanding, okay, no, there was a lot of these socioeconomic factors that were going on 
to really understand World War One, you have to understand World War Two. You know, like there's more going on here. Um, you, you, what you learned isn't wrong, but it's not as detailed as we'd like. But then you get to you know undergrad, and they're like, everything you know is wrong. <laughs> like, um, everything you were taught is just like bubblegum cookie cutter. It's wrong. We're gonna like dive into this, and then if you continue on um, in terms of post uh, postgraduate school or anything like that, then you you find your sliver of that yes. history that you're like, okay, I'm gonna know like everyone's name from this 10-year period <laughs> and anything that happened I will have a footnote on it you know um so I think the the problem with defining public history is if if that's our spectrum from learning the the absolute surface level of of understanding of a topic of an event that happened to 10 minutes of that event that happened and knowing every detail of that 10 minutes where in that spectrum, where on that line do you guys think public history should exist? Because there has to be a balance, right? We can't, as public historians or as museum folk, only give like the cookie cutter nice level, but also like we can't go into those like excruciating details that no one cares about as a niche version of history, as you pointed out, Garrett. So where does public history live on that spectrum? Do you I think? think I think Nathan can attest to this from my four months being here when I help write like. Um, little little exhibit blurbs trying to talk about specific objects that are in our exhibits, just how niche I get as a student and how focused I am on these tiny details. And he always like encourages me to just kind of make it accessible for people, make it so that people, people can understand it. It's not the things that we're interested in as um, history professionals, but the things that people from the public are interested in. Mm -hmm. And when you were describing the spectrum, I think it's like, it's more in that middle, but it's giving people enough information that they want to get to that deeper level, giving them enough information that they want to go and learn more, or they want to come and ask us so that we can give them this niche information. But instead of like presenting it as, yeah, the, the pilgrims in the, uh, in the native Americans had Thanksgiving and everything was all right. Just kind of explaining that yeah. it wasn't, wasn't that simple, but like not getting into the excruciating details of what actually happened or like in world war two, not getting into the excruciating details of that socioeconomic like factors or even like world war or not world war two. Well, um, like the civil war, not like displaying it as like the North never had slaves. They never had slaves at all. Explaining like there were different aspects of this, but not, exactly going too deep, just letting the people ask the questions that they want to find out more about. Yeah. Do you think that defines a good museum versus a bad museum? The level of depth they're willing to get into or not? Not necessarily. I, I, think, I think it's the way you convey the message and what message you're trying to convey, I guess, that is what makes a good museum. So if you can do that in a concrete way where, for example... Um, <clears throat> I was also thinking about exhibits right before you were mentioning that last part, Garrett. Whenever I design an exhibit, I always have this sort of big idea that I want people to come away with. Um, and so, for example, Garrett and I are working on developing um, some panels and working on designing this Cold War exhibit. And so the big idea that I want to get across to them is answering the question of why did the Cold War happen and why did it persist for so long? Why did we get in these conflicts for 40 plus years with, uh, between us and Soviet Russia? And so, um, to do that, we are gonna, we've chosen to focus a bit on the nuclear weapons and just kind of the, the overall fear. Um, and some people may call it paranoia. 
Um, some people that lived it would not call it paranoia by any means. Um, but, but getting that message across to the public. And so what we're going to do is have, you know, very large images of nuclear bombs because, you know, that's what people feared at the time. We're going to have the, the sounds of, of sirens and, and stuff like that to sort of convey that message and get to the why did the Cold War sort of happen. Um, so I, I think when, you know, evaluating how well a museum uh, conveys specific themes to the public, I, I think it's just a matter of, you know, how do they do that? How can they do that um, as well as they can? Um, and so it, that comes about through events and exhibits and through sharing, you know, artifacts and things like that. Um, but I, I would say when you asked as well about where in that spectrum do museums sort of lie, I would probably also say in the middle. Um, Garrett, I share your frustration when, when designing any exhibit panels because uh, you always have to cut so much out, it seems like. <laughs> um, not just you, I mean, me too. Um, I'm always, I start out like, oh, I want them to know this and this and this. And then by the end of it, it's like, it's a little more cookie cutter sometimes. But mm -hmm. I still always try to make that language um, relate back to the big idea. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's really, it's all about the big idea. Yeah. And, and like the other thing that um, mu like museums can kind of like struggle or excel at is trying to provide like these panels with with words and like text and have them relate to the artifacts and how them have them tell like the story together. Like that's that's something that I'm learning a lot about in my classes is trying to trying to use the artifacts and the like images that we're using in these exhibits as like the focal point and letting the text be like that extra like things that make you the like parts that make you ask the questions and have the artifacts be like the main part of the exhibit. And I think that's, that's kind of what public history is here for, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think public history ultimately just has different goals in mind than a lot of academic history. I think most academic historians are somewhat inward. It's about mm -hmm. their own curiosity and their own interest in fully delving into a single subject and them knowing all about it. Um, and then depending on the level of historians, you know, they're sometimes trying to prove a point. Like they have a, a hypothesis of why something happened and they're out to kind of prove it. Whereas I think for most museums, there's never an interest in sort of proving something to the public, or at least um, a lot of the methodology that I've encountered with um exhibition development and curatorship is that you're, you're not really supposed to try to prove anything to the public. You're just supposed to present them with general information and let them kind of derive their own meaning from it. Or, um, you know, it not necessarily that that doesn't mean that there isn't a big idea or isn't something you want them to walk away with, but sometimes what you want them to walk away with is just a general concept or a general idea or, or, or a question that you pose to them that you want them to chew on during and after the exhibit. And I think that's kind of the the main difference that I see. So I have a follow-up question for the both of you. Um, do you think museums, because I don't think um, academic history has any interest in sort of challenging anyone in terms of like trying to change your mind necessarily about anything, more just putting detailed information out there. Do you think museums have a responsibility or should they challenge their audience, challenge their perception of something? I think that's kind of the whole point of museums in a way. I think that they're there to display information that like we know on the surface level about. Like say for Frankenmuth, most kids here know that the town was founded by Germans. They know 
who founded it, like kind of the reason they're here. But our museum is here to show like that entire story, that entire story of like um, when I give tours talking about why the original 15 settlers left, showing them that like there, it's a lot deeper than maybe they think it is. And like just going through the history of Frankenmuth and showing that like Frankenmuth hasn't always been a tourist town, showing why it became a tourist town, showing like all mm. these different parts. And I think like another museum that I think of um, when it comes to that, for me is again, the Holocaust museum mm -hmm. showing that like, it kind of challenges like the, in a way it does kind of involve like just challenging greater perceptions about the Holocaust and like things that we learn about. And then they show like the deeper meaning and trying mm -hmm. to show that like, it, again, it was a bigger event than we are taught. And I think like, maybe it's not challenging your perspective specific perception but in a way it's forcing you to think a little deeper i guess yeah. if that makes sense i think the way the holocaust museum did that specific just kind of jumping on that is because they tell the human story mm -hmm. throughout the whole thing it's not just a series of events with artifacts that represent those events it's because they really told the the human story and i think that's kind of what you were getting at with your frankenmuth example too is it's not just uh public history has to really uh, has a challenge i think in front of it of just not presenting dates and information but making that kind of empathetic connection with the people that came before us and what were they doing and why were they doing these things? You know, who were they? I think uh, the field of history, even academic history, is kind of moving that way too. I mean, ever since I was an undergrad, one of my professors told me, don't worry as much about the dates. Like, yes, you need to know the chronology and what happened and why. Like, that's the important part. But if you, do, if you forget that, you know, Civil Rights Act signed in 1965, the exact date, like, that's okay. You don't need to know that. You can Google that. That's it's the joy of technology that we have now. Um, but the, your question, Malcolm, though, I would, I would push back a little bit on um, sort of what you said that academic historians and, and public historians even, that maybe they shouldn't challenge the public. I know you weren't saying that. You were asking if they should. Um, but academic historians, I think that's really there's a whole field of history kind of called revisionist history that has looked back um at i'll give you an example so for so academic historians always thought of slavery um as this sort of backwards institution for some time um that they kind of looked at the writings of the time and that was actually an argument that um pro-slavery pro-slavery supporters yes were we're using and abolitionists, excuse me, I'm going to go back. So that was an argument that abolitionists were using against slavery, right? It was a backwards institution. We should abolish it. Um, it's morally backward. It's economically backward. When actually there's some of these new studies, um, Empire of Cotton is one of them, that really looks at slavery and shows how it fit really well into this capitalist system. Um, and because of that, there are so many ways, so many things in our economy today that came about um, just the way like we loan things because slaves were actually loaned out. And so it's really challenging this idea, right, that slavery was a backwards institution. And I think um, public historians, we, we sort of challenge people at times as well, um, whether we are supposed to or not. That That's a tough question. But I think um, overall, historians, academic and public they they already sort of do that in many ways and like i think the like listening to both of you talk about like the the issue of challenging people in history i think that's kind of a broader theme of our field is we don't want to present information to people that they already know 
Like we don't want to present them the information they learned in elementary school and just be like, this is exactly right. This is what you learned. And it's the only (laughs) thing that you'll ever need to know about something. We're trying to show like in academic history, like you said, like when you go into like your postgraduate, like, um, like field of study, like you're finding a really niche part of history to show people about. And you want to like kind of show how important maybe that super niche part of history is to people. You're trying to show that like the 10 minutes of World War II that you're studying was really important. And most people won't know that. And I think also that's the thing about a little more niche museums as well, like like the Holocaust museums showing like the human side of it. You're trying to maybe not exactly challenge perceptions, but you're trying to challenge people to want to know more about a specific person, a specific event. And I think that's, again, one of the broader themes of history. We don't want to continually show you the same exact information. We want to show you new information and make you think about it a little more deeply. And I think what we're getting at is that history is an ever-evolving field. Kind of just like, you know, sciences or math is. They, they build on the foundation that others have set, and that's what historians really do. Um, and so sometimes that does mean challenging the narrative. Um, other times that means, no, we were, we were right. At least we think we are now. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I think uh, this has been a pretty awesome discussion about public history, about what we do. Um, did we define public history or did we just talk about it? <laughs> I think we kind of did. Um, what do you all have? Any final thoughts? I think, I think we got, I think we got to the point. I think we did that cool thing where historians talk about really niche things for about 45 (laughs) minutes and then they, uh, yeah, I think we, I think we did, did our jobs pretty well. I like it. I like it. Okay. Well, thank you guys. Thank you all listeners for uh, joining us on our first podcast. We hope you uh, stick along for the journey. Um, And I'll feed us